uh, earlier, Luke told Rich um, not to introduce me because I need no interruption. Um, but I just thought in case there are people who don't know who I am, uh, my name's Jai. Um, you can sit down, Rich, thanks. Uh, my name's Jai, I'm a member of the church here. Um, and occasionally um, the guys uh, give me the great privilege of being um, let loose in the, in the pulpit. Um, so it's, it's my great pleasure to, to bring you God's word today. Um, why don't we uh, pray to God um, before we dive in. Heavenly Father, um, we pray that you would be uh, with us today as we uh, look at your word. Uh, would you teach us from it? Um, Lord, would you um, let my words be uh, true? And uh, would you give us uh, listening hearts um, and soft hearts uh, that would uh, uh, rejoice in you and, and respond to your word, Lord? Amen. So if you were here last week... Um, You'll know that we've just started a new series in the book of Galatians, um, which is a letter uh, written by an influential uh, first century Christian teacher by the name of Paul. And it's addressed to the churches in a region called Galatia, hence the name. Um, And that's uh, somewhere in in modern day Turkey. And it was written to deal with a specific theological issue that Paul could see in the Galatian church. Uh, so, so what was happening was that a group of Jews claiming to be Christians were going around telling people that they must become Jewish before they become Christian. Uh, they, they were saying that in order to be saved, you must first be circumcised. And that those who are not circumcised were still under God's judgment. Now this is terrible news for Paul because the gospel that he preached to them was totally different. It was one of salvation by God's grace alone. That no amount of human effort was sufficient or even necessary uh, to to restore a right relationship with God. And Paul said that the only hope is God's grace. His undeserved kindness towards people who live their lives in rebellion against him. Uh, and, And it's God's grace ultimately revealed in the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. Uh, Luke called this group um, agitators, um, so that's the word. So that's the word I'm going to use uh, today. So these agitators, uh, they knew this message of grace, they knew what Paul was preaching, and they were turning the Galatian Christians away from the true gospel. And they did this by claiming that Paul was removing things from the requirements of the gospel. Um, in order to please people, in order to, to win converts, to win influence, um, whatever they thought he was trying to do. But as we saw last week, um, in verse 10, Paul says, Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I was still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. So Paul asserts that he's, he's not trying to please people. He is trying to please Christ. And the next verses that we're going to look at um, are basically Paul's defense of that assertion. In one way, it's a, it's a bit of a strange passage, um, and it's been a bit of a weird one to prepare this week. It's not as theologically rich as a lot of Paul's letters. You know, when, when you read through the letters, um, they, they're just like brimming full um, of, of truth, um, theological truth um, and 
yeah, you, like you could preach, you know, you could preach a verse a week, um, or at least Ian could, um, but we're not going to do that. Um, sorry, <laughs> unnecessary dig there. Um, we're not going to do that. But it, but instead, this section is is like it kind of reads like a bit of a potted autobiography of Paul's life. It's a bit weird. But Paul's aim here. Um, it's not, it's not really to defend himself. He's not talking about himself to defend himself, really. That's not his end goal. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 5. It says, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So in all that Paul says here, his desire is not that he would be acknowledged and proved right, but that the true gospel would be taught and believed. As many of you know, um, I work as a website developer, so I think uh, the web is a really cool place, um, and there are lots of good things that have come um, out of out of uh, having the web. Um, things like um, communication with people across the world, um, access to a whole load of information uh, that that we didn't have access to before. Um, and it's a great place to shop as well. You know, you don't even have to go out shopping. It's fantastic. But when we're, when we're doing those things, something that's really important is security, isn't it? We, we want to be sure when we're putting our credit card details into Amazon that some stranger with dodgy intentions, we, we want to be sure that they're not going to be able to get access to those details. So websites use this thing called an SSL certificate. Uh, you might not have heard that term before, but you've probably all seen the little green padlock in your browser. Yeah? You got some nods? Yeah? Yeah, a few people. <laughs> so that's that's really important. You know, if you're um, giving personal information, if you're sending personal messages, you want to be sure that that green padlock is there because that means uh, that, that stuff's secure. Basically, the certificate um, has got to be issued by a trusted authority, and it guarantees you, as the user, firstly, that your information is being scrambled as it's sent over the network, so that if anyone does read it, it doesn't make sense to them. They can't actually get access to the information. And secondly, uh, it makes sure that this is the website that you think it is, that it is the, you know, the, the, the place that you mean to be sending your information to. Uh, there's a lot of caveat there. Um, obviously, this doesn't give you any guarantees about what the company does with your information once they've received it. Maybe they'll sell it to third parties. Don't know. That's up to you to decide. Um, but that certificate kind of like verifies it, it like rubber stamps that, that this information that you're sending, it's, you know, um, that it's secure. So, what's that got to do with Galatians? Um, what, what we really have here in this section of Galatians is Paul, um, Paul's kind of certificate. He's, he's like verifying um, that the gospel that he's preaching is the true gospel. That it's not some, um, some man-made thing. That it really is the gospel from God. And as we walk through the passage, uh, we're going to see that Paul gives four different evidences that this gospel is from God and not from man. Um, you've got them on your on your sheet there, um, but let me just read through them so that we know where we're going. So the gospel is from God, and we know that because it is received by revelation, it is confirmed by change, 
It's taught without training. And it's affirmed by the apostles. So yeah, they're on your sheets if you find taking notes helpful. Um, I usually do because it helps me to jog my memory in life group. Uh, I can't usually remember between Sunday and Thursday. So just having those notes means that I can remember. Um, uh, and also, it's, it's a really good idea to have your Bibles open. Um, I'd really recommend that because um, we're going to be in and out uh, of the text. Um, and if it's in front of you, it means that you can check that what I'm saying is really there in the Bible. So if you've not got that open in front of you, um, turn to page 1168 um, in the Red Church Bibles. Uh, and let's dive in. So, firstly, uh, we know that this gospel is from God because it was received by revelation. So let's read those first two verses that Hannah read to us earlier. Uh, Verse 11 to 12 of Galatians 1. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. So contrary to what the agitators were saying, Paul is clear that his teaching is not man-made. It's not of human origin. It doesn't come from some uh, philosopher pondering the meaning of life. It isn't the result of careful study and investigation. It wasn't manufactured by someone hoping, uh, you know, for gains, profit, or status, or whatever. Now, the origins of the gospel are divine. It's a plan worked out by God before the beginning of time to make a people for Himself, uh, to enjoy and to glorify Him forever. And more than the gospel just originating with God, it it came to Paul in his specific situation. It came to him um, without being passed on by people. Some of you might be familiar with Paul's conversion story. Um, We're not going to dwell too much on it here uh, because we'll come back to it later. But um, flick with me. um, Keep a finger in Galatians and flick with me to Acts chapter 9, which is on page 1102. 1102. So we're just going to read a few verses from the start of Acts chapter 9. Oh, by the way, um, sometimes Bible characters have more than one name, um, and that's the case here. You'll see that Paul is called Saul. He just had two different names. Even in Acts, he's, he's called by birth names. Um, so Acts chapter 9 it says meanwhile Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way whether men or women he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem as he neared Damascus on his journey suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him Saul Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Okay, you can, you can flick back to Galatians now. Um, so you, you can see that Paul 
wasn't converted because he was like convinced by a person, by some, you know, clever arguments or anything like that. He, he had a direct encounter, a direct revelation of Jesus. And therefore, his gospel isn't tainted with the leanings or the distortions um, of men. Paul was convinced that the gospel was true because he got it straight from the horse's mouth. And that means that he's not made it up to please people. He's just passing on the message that God gave to him. And if these people, these agitators, want to take issue with the message, then they're going to have to take issue with God. This is good news for us too, isn't it? That the gospel is from God. Because it means that we can have confidence in the message. It means that we can stand firm in it. Rather than being crippled by doubt and pulled from new idea to new idea, always running around after the latest, um, you know, the latest ideas and thoughts and philosophies. It gives us certainty that we just don't find in man-made ideas. But it's right here in God's direct revelation to us. And if it's from God, then there's no room for arrogance, is there? Being convinced that Jesus is the only way isn't an arrogant stance. It's, it's the truth. It's revealed by God. First in Jesus, and now through the witness to him that we have in his word. Okay, let's move on. Uh, the second piece of evidence that Paul gives that the message he preaches is the true gospel is that it is confirmed by change. And what I mean by change is Paul's own dramatic life change. We've, we've just seen it there. Um, and, and he talks about it again in Galatians. So look down with me at verse 13. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. You see, before he was a Christian, Paul was a Jew. And he wasn't just any Jew. He was, you know, he was a rabbi. He was a Pharisee. He was like steeps in the traditions of his fathers. He was, he was zealous for the law. He was zealous for, for doing things by the letter of the law. Um, and all of these extra traditions and rules that had, that had come up in that, um, in that tradition of the Pharisees. And he hated anyone who didn't live in the way that he did. And especially those blasphemous Christians. This man, Jesus, he claimed that the Old Testament law was fulfilled in him. And the eternal life came through trusting him. And not through keeping the law that Paul had lived his whole life towards. So, Paul tried to destroy the church. He persecuted Christians. He went around killing believers and shutting down churches. If he was alive today, we'd probably call him a terrorist. In fact, he was, he was probably the head of a terrorist organization. He was the least likely person that you could possibly imagine to profess faith in Jesus. 
you know, if, if, we, if we read through the Gospels, we encounter a load of morally dubious characters, don't we? The tax collectors, uh, the prostitutes, the thieves. And some of them uh, become believers in Jesus. But Paul, this was a totally different thing. This man was beyond reason. He was completely, completely convinced that he was doing the right thing. But we know what happens next, don't we? Verse 15. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. We'll stop there. I realize it's halfway through a verse. But we'll pick up that for later. Instead of uh, persecuting Christ and destroying the church, Paul was now preaching Christ and he was building the church. And what's more, he was preaching to Gentiles. The Gentiles were, were the non-Jews, the uncircumcised, the people who didn't have the law. God breaks into Paul's life and he flips it upside down. It's a complete and sudden reversal. Totally unexpected and totally unexplainable, at least by human standards. But Paul can explain it. What happened? God happened. But when God, God intervened in Paul's life to reveal Jesus in an incredible way, transforming this, this terrorist who threatened to be the end of the church before it even really got going, into its greatest ever evangelist and preacher who spread the news far and wide. There isn't any other explanation that will do. Paul didn't decide himself to turn to the true gospel. It wasn't by his own will or effort or good behavior. He was literally, he was on his way to Damascus uh, to go and take Christians back to Jerusalem and lock them up in prison. That's, that's what it says in Acts 9, doesn't it? Only supernatural intervention can explain this radical turnaround. And we can't separate Paul's conversion from his call to minister to the Gentiles uh, because he doesn't here. The very reason Paul did this dramatic work, uh, sorry, the, the reason God did this dramatic work in Paul was so that he could be uh, the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul was convinced that he'd been chosen by God from before he was even born. And he compares himself to uh, the Old Testament prophets. Listen to these words from Jeremiah chapter 1 and see if you recognize them. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. The agitators denied that Paul was really a messenger from God. But he responds by showing them that the gospel is powerfully at work in him. And it's a gospel that he was chosen and commissioned by God to preach. I think this is really cool because it shows us that the power of the gospel is not in the ability of the messenger. The power of the gospel is not in the ability of the messenger. The power is in the message itself. God is clearly able to save sinners without any help from us. 
We've seen it right here. And that, that has implications for our own evangelism, doesn't it? It stops evangelism being about me. About my ability to, to articulate it clearly. About my clever arguments. About my winsome personality. It shifts the focus from me to the message. I don't know if anyone is uh, watching The Apprentice this week. Anyone? Going to be watching? Yeah? Yeah, a few people? Yeah, I, I love it. Uh, the Jones has introduced me to it. Um, and I think it's great. I think it's just um, it's just the people and the utter like arrogance of them combined with their stupidity. Like, those two things are just... It's just great. Great TV. Highly recommend it. Uh, well, a big part of that show is being able to sell stuff. And you find out pretty quickly within the first few weeks... Who, who's the person who can, you know, sell snow to Eskimos? And who's the person who just can't sell anything at all? Um, and, you know, they're often selling, like, they're often selling the same thing. But some of them are good at it, and some of them are utter rubbish, and they get fired. Which is fair enough. Um, and I, I think that's often the case, isn't it? We, like, we, we often choose products and services... Uh, not based on the product or service itself, but on how good the salesperson is on the phone or in the shop, or how good the advertising is. I don't know if you do. I, I definitely do that. But the gospel is the total reverse of that. My guess is that if I ask you now to give yourself a rating, you know, just, just think in your head, give yourself a rating out of 10. How good are you? Like, how, how good is your gospel selling technique? You know, if you were on a top trumps card, gospel selling technique, score out of 10, what would it be? You don't have to tell me. Just think about it in your head. I'm guessing that it's not very high. Mine wouldn't be. I'm not going to tell you what I gave myself. <laughs> but, but that shouldn't stop us doing it. That's my point. Our job is to proclaim the good news of Jesus. And we just have to do it as our ability, our knowledge, our energy and enthusiasm allows us. Now, I'm not saying that it's not good to be ready. In fact, we're commanded to be ready. 1 Peter 3.15 says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. So, do come along to the Evangelism Course Seminar. Do have your testimony ready to go do read and watch and and listen to good resources that are going to help you think uh, about these issues and help you to answer people's questions. Those things are vitally important. But when the opportunity comes up and you feel like you haven't done those things well enough, whatever that means, then just go for it anyway. That's not an excuse not to speak. If you think that you don't have the ability to convince people to turn away from their sin and turn towards God, then you are absolutely spot on. And do you know how much that matters? Not a bit. The power is in the message, not in you. God will do his work through the gospel. Okay. Let's uh, move on to the third uh, bit of evidence that Paul gives, that the message is from God. 
And that is that, that he was taught without training. Sorry, he, he taught without training. He taught the gospel without any kind of formal training. So uh, we're going to read um, basically the rest of chapter 1. Um, we'll start reading in verse 15, seeing as we kind of broke off halfway through a sentence. So verse 15 of chapter 1. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, so that I might preach him to the Gentiles... My immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I'm writing to you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia, I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. Did you manage to follow all that? All those times and places? Um, I thought it would be quite good uh, at this point to um, just pause and kind of get our bearings with where we are in the life of Paul. Um, I thought that might be a useful thing to do. Um, so we're going to get a bit of help from the book of Acts, um, and, and I've put together a little timeline. Uh, I don't know if that is. Can you can you see that? Um, so this is this is a bit of a timeline of Paul's life um, from his conversion up to the writing of Galatians. Um, there there is some um, dispute over the different dates of when things happened, and a little bit in the ordering. Uh, I don't think it matters too much. Um, but this is the, the, the version that I've gone with. Um, so we think Paul was probably converted around 31 or 32 AD, um, so like not very long after the death of Jesus. Um, he spent a bit of time in Damascus and Arabia. Um, and, then, uh, and then after three years in Damascus, um, he had to get out of there because some Jews were coming and trying to kill him. So he went off to Jerusalem, um, and he spent a couple of weeks there, uh, 15 days it says uh, in Galatians, doesn't it? He spent 15 days with Peter. Um, Cephas is just another name for Peter. Um, but he only spends a couple of weeks there because some more people come and try and kill him. So he's got to be smuggled out of Jerusalem as well. Um, after which he spends about five years teaching in Syria and Cilicia. Uh, and then Barnabas com- comes and gets him and they go to Antioch. And teach there for a year. Uh, there's a bit of a gap here, um, so I don't know exactly all that happened in that gap. Um, but the next thing that Paul says in chapter two, verse one, is after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. Um, so, like 14 years after his conversion, uh, he goes back to Jerusalem, and that's what uh, the verse in chapter two are about. So we'll kind of see those in a bit. Um, so that's you know vaguely interesting stuff. Seeing how the how Acts and Galatians fit together, and I'd encourage you to kind of read the bits of Acts that like match up with Galatians, and see if you can kind of come up with your own um, theories about how it all fits together. Uh, but what's the what's the point? What's the point of Paul telling us all this? 
Well, I think what he's doing is answering a specific accusation from the agitators. Um, and that accusation was they'd learned the gospel from the apostles. Like, they'd, they'd taught him what the gospel was, and then he'd just gone away and changed it to his own liking. They distorted it and started teaching that instead. But according to these verses, that didn't happen. He never actually met the apostles for the first three years of his ministry. And it was another 10 years or so until he actually spent any you know, decent time with them. He just didn't have the opportunity to receive his message from them. After his conversion, he just, he just went straight into preaching the gospel. He didn't go and check with anyone. Uh, it says, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. Now, the Greek there for human being is flesh and blood. Um, which is a phrase that tends to be used to talk about like human weakness, really. So Paul had his message, and he knew it was from God. So he doesn't need to go and check that it's um, that it's sound. And this is really important to his argument, isn't it? It's quite vehement in verse twenty. He backs he backs everything up with. Um, with references to times and places. He's like daring the agitators to, you know, come on, go and, go and check it out. Go and check it out with the people who are there. And the last thing that he says in his defense in chapter one is that he didn't really know the Judean church at all. Judea was um, the, the kind of broad um, area or, or province um, that included Jerusalem. Um, so the, the original area where the gospel was spreading. Um, so he didn't even go there and learn the gospel secondhand, and then go and go off and um, and distort it. In fact, the the Judean church heard about what he was doing and they praised God for it. Okay, so finally, the uh, the fourth bit of evidence that Paul gives to prove his messages from God is the affirmation of the apostles. Let's go into chapter 2 then. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Not going with me. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation, and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure that I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. So Paul goes back to Jerusalem, and this time it's not because people are trying to kill him, which is good, but it's because God has revealed to him that he should go there. And when he gets there, he finally meets up with the apostles. That's uh, Peter, James, and John. Um, it says uh, those esteemed as leaders. That's who he's talking about. It kind of comes in a bit later. And, and why, why, does he, why does he do this? Why does he have this meeting? Well, the first time I read it, I thought, it seems like Paul wants to go and check that the apostles are happy with the message that he's preaching. He wants to get their approval and, um, and make sure that he's, he's not been preaching the wrong message. But I feel like that would go against everything that he's just said about his message being from God, wouldn't it? Do you think that Paul would have changed his gospel if the apostles had said to him, no, no, you've got it wrong? 
You need to add this. No, of course he wouldn't. Because whatever authority the apostles had, surely it was not as much as the authority of God who had given him the message. So I think what's actually going on is not Paul checking that his own gospel is right. It's the other way around. Paul is presenting the gospel to the leaders of the Jerusalem church to make sure that they are preaching the true gospel as well. If they add anything to the gospel, if they're preaching a different gospel to Paul, that was, that's going to have serious consequences, isn't it? For the spread of the true gospel. It's going to have serious consequences for his ministry to the Gentiles. All the work that he'd done so far could just probably be flushed down the toilet. The future of the Gentiles, Gentile church was at stake. That's why he has the meeting. So I think it must have been a, a pretty tense meeting. So let's, let's see what happens. Verse 3. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. That's a good start, isn't it? Titus was a Greek, just another word for a Gentile, so he wasn't circumcised. Paul brought him along as a test case with the apostles you're going to make Titus be circumcised. No. Brilliant. Paul and the apostles are on the same page. So far, so good. And next we get a little bit of context. The reason why this was all necessary. Verse 4. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves We didn't give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So there's some fake Christians and they're trying to convince uh, the Christians that in order to be Christians, they need to be circumcised first. Kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? I'm not sure whether this is the same group, um, but they're they're singing from the same hymn, hymn sheet. Paul describes them as slaves. Basically, to be to be under the law is slavery. And to be under the gospel is freedom. This is a, a major theme in, in Galatians. It's the first time that Paul mentions it. So uh, I'm not gonna um, I'm not gonna spend any time on it today because we're gonna spend plenty of time on that over the next few weeks. But importantly, Paul and Barnabas and Titus uh, didn't cave under pressure from this group. They stood firm on the true gospel. Let's carry on reading verse 6. As for those who are held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. This is absolutely vital, isn't it? This is, this is what Paul wanted to know. The apostles added nothing to his message. Salvation is by grace alone. It's not by grace plus circumcision. It's not by grace plus baptism. It's not by grace plus church membership. 
It's not by grace plus tradition. It's not by grace plus uh, keeping the law. If something is added to the gospel, something that a person is required to do in order that that they're saved, then grace is no longer grace, is it? It's no longer undeserved. And the gospel falls apart. This, this was the agitator's whole argument that Paul was preaching a different gospel to the apostles. But we can see that that's just a downright lie. They'd not done their research. And hopefully the Galatian Christians who are reading this can see that plain as day as well. And if we read on in chapter 2, we can see um, that not only uh, do they affirm Paul's message, Paul's gospel, uh, but they affirm his mission as well. They affirm his ministry to the Gentiles. They recognize that God has called him and has sent him uh, to do work among the Gentiles to preach the gospel to them in the same way that Peter is sent as the apostle to the Jews. And they extend the right hand of fellowship, it says, affirming their partnership together in their different gospel ministries. So they have different callings, but they have one united gospel. This has got to be a total kick in the teeth, hasn't it, for Paul's opponents? Their argument is in pieces. Paul has shown beyond doubt that his gospel is not a man-made distortion, but the true gospel which comes from God. As we close, I just want to think um, for a few minutes about the subject of authority. As we've said, Paul didn't recognise Uh, the authority of the apostles as being above the authority of the gospel message. The apostles were not beyond error. They made mistakes. And we'll see that next week. Peter makes a big, big mistake and Paul calls him out for it. And uh, Paul, Paul kind of says pretty much the same thing himself, doesn't he? He says earlier in chapter one, if we even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. The authority is in the message because the message is from God. It's not in the messengers. We already kind of saw that the the power is not in the messengers, it's in the message, but the authority is in the message too. The men in this meeting were like, they were the heavyweights of Christianity. They were the top dogs in the church. They were witnesses to Jesus' life and death and resurrection. They were appointed by God to preach the gospel, to be the first ones to spread the good news. I I, I did a bit of counting up. I like maths. So I did a bit of counting up. And, And if you count it up, 21 or 22, depending on who wrote Hebrews, um, 21 or 22 of the books of the New Testament are written by the people in this room at this meeting. So there is a lot of authority there. And yet, it is the message of the gospel that Paul tells them to stick to. He doesn't tell them to stick to a particular apostle. He doesn't tell them to stick to him, but to stick to the message. And that's so relevant for us today as well, I think. We mustn't allow the opinions of of people 
to hold greater sway over us than God's truth revealed in the gospel. There isn't a higher authority than that. How, how might that um, manifest itself in our lives? Well, maybe sometimes it can be in obvious ways, can it? You know, most Christian cults, uh, Mormonism, for example, um, begin with someone claiming to have received extra revelation from God, that they have uh, some kind of authority, and you should listen to them um, over or you know, at the same level as what the Bible is teaching. Or in the, in the Catholic Church, it's kind of the same with the Pope, isn't it? The Pope's word is put on a par with Scripture. That's just nonsense based on this passage, isn't it? Even the apostles didn't have that kind of authority. They only had authority insofar as they were preaching the gospel. Even in the Protestant church, you can often pick up books um, which kind of have this idea. Um, there was a book that's, uh, that's been quite popular over the last couple of years called Jesus Calling. I don't know if you've heard of it. But it, but it seems to claim that it has given us God's word in addition to what is in Scripture. We, we, we can give other things the authority of, of God in, in more subtle ways, I think, as well. I know for me, um, sometimes there are particular uh, preachers, particular writers that I just kind of implicitly trust. Um, and, and I kind of go to them to listen for what the Bible says rather than going to the Bible and seeing what it says for myself. Sometimes we can allow ourselves to be persuaded by style over substance as well, can't we? We might think first about how a particular preacher preached rather than uh, the message. I asked you at the start, we, we always ask you to keep your Bible open while we're preaching here because the authority is in the message that is in there. You need to be checking that what we are saying from the front is from the Bible. I think uh, one more way um, that we can get the get authority mixed up is when we try and appeal to some other authority to prove uh, to prove the Bible's truth claims. So I'm thinking about like archaeology, uh, science, you know, history, even logic. These things these things are great, and I found that they support the Bible whenever you dig into them. They back up Scripture. But they're not the authority on which the truth of God's word stands or falls. The authority is scripture itself. Now, if you're not a Christian, you might find this uh, somewhat unsatisfying. Maybe you think it's anti-intellectual. But let me ask you just to think for a second about what your highest authority is. You must have one. By definition, there can't be any authority greater. So what does that authority appeal to, to try and prove itself? It must, it must rely on itself. Whether that's logical reasoning, or the scientific method, or just some kind of mantra, um, the life mantra that you use. Everyone has a highest authority that they appeal to. 
to prove the truth of something. And the Christian is no different. Our highest authority is God, as he has revealed himself in Scripture. So as we close, I just want to say, Christian, be confident in the incredible gospel of grace. It is God's word. It is true. Don't be seduced by anyone adding to it. But stand firm and preserve its truth for the next generation. Let's pray.